Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by Living Word Church. We trust that as you hear the Word of God preached, you'll be encouraged and equipped to love God and do His will. If you're looking for a church home, please feel free to visit our Sunday morning worship service at 10 a.m. or visit our website at www.livingwordchurch.cc. And now for our message. How are you feeling today? Yeah, you feeling all right? How many people have breath in their lungs today? Praise God. Let me read you a scripture. You can actually sit down for just a moment. I just want to let you relax a minute. You guys can come all the way down. That's fine. I want to read this scripture to you because today is a day that we celebrate what we call Palm Sunday. How many people know Palm Sunday? How many people brought their palms to church today? It's okay because in the Bible they put down palms, but they also put down cloaks, jackets, any type of clothing you wouldn't mind removing, and they laid it out before Jesus. Let me read you that story. Jesus, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent out his two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt, a donkey, tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it to me. If anyone asks you, why are you taking our donkey? Say to them, the Lord has use of it. The Lord needs it and will send it back to you shortly. They went and they found the colt exactly on the street tied to the doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying the colt? The answer that Jesus had told them to and the people let them go. When they had brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on the donkey. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while they were spreading branches they cut from the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, say it with me, Hosanna. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Isn't that a beautiful uh, picture? I mean, it's a scene that we get as Jesus triumphantly enters into Jerusalem, knowing full well now, those of us who read the story, that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem only to be betrayed and to be crucified and to lie in the grave for three days and be raised again. And today is the day we celebrate that triumphant entry. And the people, as Jesus came through on the colt, and you get this picture of a humble king entering in, and, and he didn't come in on a white horse, he didn't come in and, you know, try to make a big splash, he came in in humility, but people recognized that Jesus was coming to bring a kingdom. And they said, Hosanna, which means save us, salvation. And they said, Hosanna in the highest. And as Jesus came through, the people, they took off their coats and they cut down branches from the field and they laid them down before Jesus and they, they prepared a path of honor for him. It was a beautiful scene. But we have to know that these same people that were shouting Hosanna were also the people down the road in a couple days that were part of a mob that were crying crucify. And so the praises of the people were imperfect. The praises of the people were fickle. But Jesus welcomed that. I love how, how many people appreciated John Johnson last week. Was he great? I watched on Facebook Live from Seattle. I'm like, I think we're going to do the trial of Facebook Live. I put it on. I saw the back of your heads, and I saw John teaching you about worship. 
And one of the ways we worship is that we, we say to God, when we worship, we speak to God praise and glory and of his great worth to us. And that's what they were doing to Jesus as he walked by. They were saying to Jesus, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed are you, Jesus. Blessed are you, because you have come in the name of the Lord to save us from our sins, deliver us from our enemies. And they praised him. This morning, we get a chance to take off our coats and throw them down before Jesus. It's not about you today. It's about saying to God, blessed are you, Jesus. Thank you for all that you have done. Thank you for who you are. Thank you, Lord, for all that you're going to do. Isn't it good to praise the Lord? I was, um, Manny, who's up in the sound today, Manny was telling me a story about, could you imagine being the donkey on that trip? Right? And uh, can I use your story, Manny? Is it okay? There you go. I'm using not Manny's story. And can you imagine the donkey walking down and people are singing Hosanna and they're dancing and they're putting down things. And suddenly the donkey is like, this is awesome. Everyone's come out to welcome me into town and people are excited about me coming. And, and like, no, the donkey, you have it wrong. It's not about you, donkey. You're just the donkey but you're exalting and you're caring and you're lifting high Jesus. And you get to be a part of the celebration. You get to be, participate in the great exaltation. And it's a lot of joy and it's a lot of honor. And let's do our part to worship and exalt the King this morning. Amen? All right, stand together and I'll pray. Father, we thank you for this great day this morning where you've given us breath. And God, we say now that we have breath, Lord, we want to praise your name. We want to exalt you. We want to give you praise. Lord, we might be the donkey, but Lord, we're a part of the ceremony. We're a part of the exaltation of Christ. And what a joy and an honor it is to gather today in your name. Blessed be your name, Lord Jesus. For you come in the name of the King to set us free from sin. God, to give us victory and testimony in this life. And Lord, let we have joy in your presence. We pray it in Jesus' name. And together we said... That's a great song for Palm Sunday, right? Jesus rides into Jerusalem as king and we sing he reigns. It's a great song for Good Friday because Jesus is on the cross showing us what his reign looks like in love and sacrifice. He reigns, right? It's a song for Easter because Jesus rises victorious from the grave having defeated death and we shout he reigns. And we could sing it on Ascension Day and on Pentecost and every day in between because every day Jesus reigns. Thank you, Chuck, for that. Whew. Good morning, church. This morning, I will be preaching due to the weather from John 14.1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. <laughs> just kidding. That's for another day. Um, I was troubled, though, when I woke up, not just this morning, but like at 1 a.m. and 3 a.m., hearing noises. There was hail outside. That's okay. We're going to get through. Spring is coming. Um, this morning is indeed Palm Sunday, so we're going to uh, hear what the Lord has to say to us from Mark 11, which Dave read from. Uh, we're going to read through that again here, and then we'll pray and see, see what God has to say. So I'm going to read through that, uh, but not just uh, what Dave read, the sort of triumphal entry passage, but also what happens um, later that day in the narrative and the following day. So this is a good 20 or so verses. So bear with me as we read through Mark chapter 11. It says, As they approached Jerusalem... And came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, 
and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you are doing this, say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. So they went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked them, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered, just as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. And when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The following day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went out to find if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing, uh, nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this, and they began looking for a way to kill Jesus, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When they came, when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. And in the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, teacher, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your presence here among us this morning. We thank you that we can see Jesus riding on a, a, a humble, simple colt into Jerusalem and see that he means to be king over us. And we thank you that we see in his reaction that day and in the following week, Passion Week, with the crucifixion and the resurrection and everything else it holds, that his kingship is not like the kingship of the world, but that he brings us something new that brings life and freedom to us. We're glad to be people of King Jesus. And we pray this morning that as we hear your heart for us in this story, you would speak, God, and shape us into people who let the love of Jesus extend through us and into the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so if your Bible or your phone is anything like mine, the, cha- the heading to Mark chapter 11 probably says something like, Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king, right? Anyone have their Bible open? Want to verify that? Anyone have an alternate? Some- does it say something else? The triumphal entry? Uh The classic kind of title for this scene. Anything beyond those two. I can't imagine what else it would say. Right, so the setting for this story is that in some sense, Jesus triumphantly enters into Jerusalem as king. But Dave kind of pointed this out earlier. That there is something more to be said about that, right? Because 
If Jesus rode into Jerusalem, which was ruled by Rome as king, and the crowds were really intent on Jesus getting there and then saying, he's the king now, then wouldn't we expect the Romans to at least show up and make sure they're not taking themselves too seriously and that there's not going to be a, a revolt or a revolution of some kind? There's more to be said about that story, but we're not going to go there today. What I want us to focus on, what I think the Lord really has to say to us, has to do with the question of what kind of king Jesus comes to Jerusalem as. Or perhaps better, what has he come to do as king? Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a colt, which is a baby donkey, effectively. Those who saw him would have thought of Zechariah chapter 9, at least the the Jews who were traveling to Jerusalem with Jesus and those who met him at the gates of the city and laid out their cloaks and their palm branches would definitely have thought of Zechariah chapter 9, which we have on the screen, I think. In the ancient world, if a king rode to a city on a white horse, a war horse, it meant that he came to judge and to destroy. But if a king came on a donkey or a colt, it meant that he came in peace. And Zechariah earlier in chapter 9, describes that God has come and brought judgment on the nations of the earth, but when it comes to his people, the Israelites, Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem, you Israelites. See, though your king has judged the nations, he comes to you. Where are we here? He comes to you righteous and victorious. Lowly, though, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus comes to Jerusalem in peace, right? But we're going to see in what follows that, in some sense, Jesus also comes to Jerusalem in judgment. And that might not sit too well with us. But if you look at Luke's version of this story, in Luke chapter 19, uh, as Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on the donkey of peace, he's literally weeping and crying, and prophesying judgment over Jerusalem. So the question that this story puts to us is, is Jesus coming in judgment or in peace? And the answer the story gives us is yes. Jesus comes as both, in both, with both in mind, right? And isn't that the beauty and the the genius, really, of so much of what Jesus does? That when we would put Jesus into our kind of binaries of this or that, Jesus shows up, and shows us that there's another way, right? That the kingdom of God is not bound by our categories, but that Jesus is doing something that's new, that doesn't fit into our categories. Jesus explodes our categories, and we see in Jesus that the judgment of God is revealed in him, but that it doesn't look like the judgment of the rulers of the world or the gods of pagan nations. The judgment of God revealed in Jesus looks like self-giving love, right? It looks like what we see in the coming week. The king himself giving himself in self-sacrificing love for the sake of his people. Jesus shows us a third way, and it's important, church, for us to learn to not try to fit Jesus into our categories, but to listen to him and to learn from him the third way of love. So Jesus comes as king, and Yet this triumphal entry ends kind of anticlimactically, right? Mark says that rather than showing up in Jerusalem and confronting Caesar and declaring that he is now king, 
Jesus arrives to Jerusalem. He kind of goes to the temple. He peeks his head in. And then it's, it's almost weird. He's like, oh, it's actually kind of late. Something I would do. Eh, it's kind of late. I'm going to go home. I got to sleep, right? I'll come back tomorrow. Jesus comes triumphantly, and yet there's this kind of, the, the air is pushed out of the, the scene as this tension is building towards what we think will be a climax. Jesus chooses to go home for the night. It's really quite peculiar. And when I read that, I wonder, right? I wonder if where Mark says that Jesus looked in the temple and went home for the night, if that's his version of Luke, showing Jesus weeping and prophesying in judgment. It doesn't say exactly what Jesus saw when he peeked his head in the temple that day. But if what he sees the next day, which we'll get to is any indication, I can imagine Jesus going home to, to Bethany, where he probably would have stayed in the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and maybe sitting on his bed or in his rocker with his head in his hands and weeping and praying. Jerusalem, oh Israel, if only you had known the things that make for peace. Which is what Luke records Jesus saying. Because what Jesus finds there, as we'll see the next day, does not sit particularly well with him. What does he find there? Well, at this point in the story, we're tempted to skip ahead. Because it seems like that's where the climax is going to finally come. But what happens first is important. And it's kind of random. Jesus wakes up in the morning and walks out of the house where we would think he would have been probably given breakfast by his host, but he walks out the door and he's hungry. And the first thing he sees in the distance is a fig tree. So Jesus is hungry and wanders over to the fig tree to see if there's any fruit on it, but he doesn't find any. And for us as the reader of Mark's story, we're not surprised because Mark tells us Plain and simple, well, it wasn't the season for figs. Mark says that he found a fig tree in leaf, but that it wasn't the season for figs. And so while it wasn't the season for figs, it was, if you will, the season for a fig tree to be in leaf, which is to say almost, it was almost the season for figs. It was coming soon, right? Right now, or at least if all goes well in three weeks, it's not the season for tomato plants in my house, but in hopefully three weeks I can say it's the season for tomato plants to be in leaf because they're growing and they're green and they're producing leaves, but it's not quite time for the fruit to show up on the vine, right? That's what's happening here with Jesus. It's not the season for figs, but it would not have been uncommon just before the season for figs for the fig tree to grow some leaves and even to produce what kind of in our terminology we call first fruits, right? Some fruit that show up early, before the main crop, and that are just as delicious and edible, but there's only a couple, but they're a sign that the harvest is coming, right? It's, it's just the right time in this story for that to happen. So Jesus goes to the fig tree hoping to find first fruits, but he finds nothing. And centuries before this, Excuse me. Centuries before this story, one of Israel's great prophets, Hosea, had spoken of Israel's relationship to God in terms of a husband 
and a wife. If you're familiar with Hosea's prophecy, it is, it's a sad, <coughs> excuse me, even a heartbreaking story of the uh, husband and wife relationship of Israel with their God. And what Hosea tells us is that after the wedding, after God and his people were brought together in covenant, the honeymoon phase was cozy, but that it didn't take very long for Israel to be like an adulterous spouse to her husband, to the Lord, right? That they gave themselves to, uh, to foreign gods and lived unfaithfully before him. That things up front in the relationship looked good, but that those initial signs, those first fruits, amounted to nothing. And Hosea tells us in chapter 9 that the cry of God, the broken-hearted husband, was this, Oh Israel, when I found you, when, when I first saw you, when I first loved you, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your ancestors, it was like what? Seeing the early fruit on the fig tree. But you gave yourself to shameful idols and you yourselves became shameful. The fig tree Jesus encounters that morning outside of the home of Mary and Martha isn't just a fig tree. It's Israel. Or better yet, more specifically, the fig tree is like a symbol for the temple. And the temple is the heart and soul of Israel. Centuries before this, God had planted Israel in the world with the intent of them bearing one central fruit. We read it in Genesis chapter 12. That God will bless Israel and the fruit they will bear is that they would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And how would they bear that fruit? Well, by living faithfully in God's ways. And God gives them a whole big law to sum up how they are to live, but fundamentally, it can all be summed up in one phrase. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. Israel existed, pure and simple, to love God with all of their heart. And as they did so, the nations would see it and be amazed and come love God with them. That's the whole story of the Bible, church, right there. But had Israel borne that fruit? Had the first fruits God saw centuries before led to a fuller harvest in his people? In some sense, that's what Jesus has come to find out. And the answer to that question lies in the temple. After Jesus curses the fig tree because it lacks first fruits, he gets to Jerusalem and enters the temple. Now, the outer courts of the temple, the first place you would have entered, were called the Gentile courts, right? They were a space in the temple that was reserved for non-Jewish people, for people kind of outside the people of God to worship him. It was, it was that place where kind of the fruit was to be born, right? Where the nations would come and love God with Israel. It was a missional space. Everything kind of happened there. That's where you would see if Israel had borne fruit or not. 
if the nations were there worshiping God with them. And centuries before, I think that's the fifth time I've said centuries before, forgive me for the history lesson, but a long time before this, the prophet Isaiah had described in just beautiful terms God's heart for this space, which is to say God's heart for those people, God's love for those outside his own people, right? Isaiah kind of poetically described that God loved everyone, not just Israel, that his love for Israel was unique and purposeful so that his love could extend to all people. And Isaiah said this, that foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. God's temple having space reserved for those beyond the Jewish people was a testament to God's love for all people. But when Jesus peeked his head in the temple last night, and when he gets there today, that is not what he finds. Instead of finding a holy, reverent space for the worship of the Gentiles, the outer courts of the temple have become a marketplace for the Jewish worshipers to buy and sell their own ceremonial good. Imagine it, right? Jesus shows up, and what he ought to find is a place of quiet and peace where people who are maybe less familiar with God can come and learn from the Jews how to worship him rightly. But instead, Jesus shows up and he finds that there are I Heart Yahweh t-shirts for sale and like Passover 2019 camel stickers that you can get, right? And there are merchandisers who are shouting over each other, trying to steal each other's business to take advantage of the Passover festival and all the profit that it could bring. Man, get your doves over here, right? Come, get your firstborn spotless lambs, just $29.99 for three months, in the space where the Gentiles should be worshiping. In the inner courts of the temple, church, this would have been blasphemy, like to the highest possible degree, a total desecration of holy space. But apparently, in the Gentile courts, it's all in a day's business? This isn't right. And as Jesus prayed last night, he knew there was only one thing he could do that would prophetically declare that God would not stand for this. That he was not okay with God's people acting contrary to the fruit God intended them to bear. That God's love for the outsider would not be stopped short by the insiders messing things up. So Jesus, what, begins to shout and flip the tables and kick over the merchandise racks because he's full of zeal for his father's house, which is a house with many rooms for all people, right? Jesus says, isn't it written that the house of God is to be a house of prayer for all nations, but you have stolen 
from those nations their place of worship. You've made it a den of robbers. Sometimes we read this text thinking that like maybe the Gentiles are the robbers, but it's the insiders who have robbed by stealing the space of worship for the Gentile worshipers. Somehow, church, God's people had allowed themselves to believe that they could love God without loving the outsider. That keeping up their own religious function would somehow be enough. But Jesus makes it clear that they have missed the whole point. That no amount of religiosity or keeping up with the Joneses in religious sense, right, was equal to actually loving God with all of your heart. Jesus makes it clear you were never chosen for your own sake. It's not supposed to stop with you that if you really want to love God with all your heart, you've got to let that love extend itself through you to other people. If we're going to lift God high in song, we've got to progress from that to letting the love of God, which we celebrate in song, extend itself outward from us to the people God has called us to love. And in the very next chapter, right, in the, in the, in the next 30 or so verses, several people come to Jesus testing his authority with trick questions because they're nervous that he might be right in his critique of what they're doing. So they test him with these trick questions and go figure, Jesus isn't fooled and he answers them wisely. And then someone comes to Jesus with a question so simple it can hardly be considered a trick, but maybe it's a trick question because it's so simple. You know those trick questions, right? Someone comes to Jesus and says, hey Jesus, what's the most important commandment in all of God's law? If he gets this one wrong, we don't need any more trick questions. We know what he's up to if he can't get this. Jesus' answer, the most important commandment in the law is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. Jesus answers correctly. Every Jew would have known that when asked the question, what is the most important commandment in the law, there's only one possible answer you could give. And Jesus gave it. But Jesus, though he answered correctly, knows based on thousands of years of history, based on 30 years of life as a faithful religious Jew, based on two or three years of ministry, and based on what he saw in the temple that although any Jewish person could recite the commandment in their sleep, they had totally lost its meaning. So Jesus goes a step further. Yes, the most important commandment in the law is to love God with all of your heart, but don't forget about the second, which is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now based on most of what Jesus ever says, but in particular the parable of the Good Samaritan, we know, church, that when Jesus says neighbor, he means everyone. He doesn't just mean, right, those who are already on the inside. The inner courts were nice and tidy. 
But when Jesus says neighbor, he means the outsider. He means the outcast. He means the foreigner. He means the oppressed. He means the enemy. He means the one who you don't get along with naturally. He means the one who looks and acts and speaks and thinks and even believes differently than you do. When Jesus says neighbor, he means everyone. And when Jesus says love, he means love, right? When Jesus says love, he means love. He doesn't mean put up with. He doesn't mean tolerate. He doesn't mean coexist peacefully alongside of. He means love. Can I ask you to raise your hand if you have ever experienced what you would call real love from another person? I hope we can all raise our hands. Like a deep, profound love that has changed you and transformed you. A love from another person that has even shown you what the love of God is like. I hope we've all experienced that. It could be a love from a parent or a sibling or a spouse or a dear friend. But there is a love that we've experienced that shows us what the love of God is like. And church, if you raised your hand in response to that question, you know, we know what real love requires. Amen? Did that person love you by accident? Did they show you that deep, profound love just by short conversations over the fence? No, right? Love isn't superficial. It, it doesn't happen by accident. Love happens when two lives are lived in such close proximity that the lines between the two lives begin to get blurred. And it's love because it's no, there's no distinction between your life and theirs. That's the deepest possible kind of love. That kind of love happens... Um, excuse me, that love happens, right, when our lives rub against each other, when we share life with each other in such a way that there's no such thing as loving your neighbor less than yourself because it's you and it's them and it's, it's life and you're together. And so whatever you have is theirs, right? That could be true, sure, in marriage. We like to talk about it that way. But look at the early church. Whatever anyone had was everyone else's because it's love, Right? You and I have experienced such deep, profound love from other people because they loved us on purpose, because they made a point of loving us, because they shared their lives with us. They gave us their time and energy and money and attention. They made us a priority, right? When they could have chosen to do just about anything else, they chose to love you instead. That's what love is like. That's the kind of love that shows someone what the love of God is like. And that is precisely the kind of love that Jesus calls us to have for our neighbor. It's the kind of love that fulfills the whole law of God. It's the kind of love that bears the fruit that the people of God have always been intended to bear. So you know what I said about your neighbor being everyone, right? Forget about it, just for a second. It's too big sometimes. It's it's inaccessible. It's overwhelming. Forget about it. And just consider the person who is your actual physical neighbor. The person, a 
across the street from you or in the apartment downstairs or in the dormitory across the way. Consider your actual physical neighbor. Think about their name. My neighbor's name on one side is Gerald. On the other side, it's Denarius and Alex. And they have two kids, Darianus and Amarantha. They're beautiful people. Think about the person who lives next door to you. And then ask yourself, what would it take for you to show them this kind of love? Right? Not the peaceful coexistence kind of love. Not the we don't hate each other love. The same love you experienced that testified to you of the love of God. What would it take for you to show them that love? If you don't know their name, if you couldn't think of anything when I asked you, that's where you start. Go over there today with hot chocolate, it's cold, and learn their name, right? That's where it starts. Think about how you could concretely, practically show them the love that would testify to the love of God in their life. Think about how you could love them concretely and on purpose and with intention in a way that makes them a priority. Think about the love you have experienced from others and from God and ask yourself, how you can show that to the person who lives next door. It's got to start there. Mr. Rogers said once that the only thing that ever really changes the world is when somebody, or in our context, when some people, when a church, gets the idea that love can abound and be shared. We have experienced the abounding love of God. And we've experienced it being shared to us from others. And we have shared it to other people. But let's continue to ask ourselves, how can we concretely and practically show the abounding love of God to the people who live next door? When Jesus leaves the temple the next day, he sees uh, his disciples, rather, excuse me, they're not leaving the temple. They leave again, the home of Mary and Martha, we think, in Bethany. And Jesus' disciples see the fig tree. And they see that it has withered and they're amazed. Jesus, look, it actually happened. And they wouldn't really understand. Jesus would tell them very plainly in the next chapters. But they still wouldn't understand until 40 or so years later when the Jerusalem temple was destroyed, what it was all about. You and I, though, we have kind of clearer hindsight. We can see what, what it was all about. That the, temp, the fig tree was the temple, and the temple was representative of the people of God who had not borne the fruit God intended them to bear. And so the temple was destroyed and the fig tree withered. And in some sense, we're left to ask ourselves, what does that mean for the people that the temple represented? Did they too wither? Were they too destroyed? No. But in Jesus, they did die. Jesus goes forward from this episode to the cross where he dies a death that all who believe in him participate in. And then on Easter, he rises again in a resurrection that his people participate in. So although we can see clearly that the fig tree withered and the temple was destroyed and the people of God failed to produce Fruit, we also know that the people of God have been given new resurrection life. 
and that by the work of Jesus and the power of the Spirit, we have been enabled to love God and our neighbor with all of our hearts, faithfully and truly as God always intended. Jesus has paved the way for us. Let's walk in his footsteps. Let's pray. And I think we'll just pray and dismiss since we're a little over. Lord God, we, we repent, God. It's, it's the season for repentance. And so we repent, God, of our failure to define both neighbor and love the way that you would have us do. We repent, God, of where we draw lines between the insiders and the outsiders. And Lord, we repent of where we've kept the inner courts nice and tidy while the space for others is deprioritized. God, we ask, rather we recognize that you have not called this church into existence for its own sake, but that you have planted us here in this place to be a blessing to all the nations, to be a blessing to all the neighbors, to let your love, which we have deeply and richly experienced, extend itself through us and to others. So, Lord, we ask, would you renew us, God? Renew us that we might be a people whose wholehearted love for you touches the lives of those around us, drawing them in to love you with us. God, we want to bear the fruit you've always intended for us to bear. Jesus, when when that man asked you what the most important commandment in the law was, you told him that it was to love God and neighbor with all of your heart. Grant us, Lord, to be able to respond just as he did. That You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. And that to love him with all of your heart and with all of your understanding and with all of your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. That to love God and neighbor with all of our heart is more important than any sense of religious function or duty. God, save us from duty and free us to live the life of love that you intend for us to live. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus, our King and Savior and Liberator, and the one who has shown us the way. Amen. Amen. Amen.